Hello, and welcome to this week's Sideshow. Uh, I'm Jacques. I'm Joe. And I'm Jacques. And I'm Joe. <laughs> and we actually have somebody on the show who has a clue of what they'll be talking about. But Get we, out of the city. Do we want to talk about what we're going to talk about first? Why don't you intro what this sideshow is? This is a whole sideshow about Warner Brothers cartoons. You know, Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies, Bugs Bunny. Basically everything that made my childhood worth the pain and sacrifice that it was. <laughs> Back when they used to show Bugs Bunny cartoons on TV, which we'll get into <laughs> later. Relentlessly. But joining us now is my good friend and my longtime friend, Peter. Hi, Peter. Say hi to the nice people. Hello. Hello to the nice people. Hello. <laughs> now Hello. say hi to our listeners. <laughs> oh, you. Hello, listeners. <laughs> nice people. Are they? Oh. See, wait, see what I did thing? there? Yeah. I, I no. see what you did there. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So All right. Peter is a prolific collector of animation. Prolific. Pro- is it prolific? Is there a pill for that? <laughs> now, in, in, in all seriousness, is there a term for somebody who collects animation like this? And leave the comments out to yourself, Biff. We don't want to hear them. We know what you guys are going what, to say. like someone who has way too much time on his hands? Or is this, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Nerd, well, like, uh, like, like somebody who, like like, let's say, collects PS, you know? Everything games. Collects penis? <laughs> well, I, no, that's I something entirely PS. different. <laughs> I mean, almost said, because I'm pointing the wall. I'm almost PlayStation PS2, games, and uh, Nintendo PlayStation. games. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Or, or somebody who has like is this a, is this six... a family show? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. No. Okay. No, we've left our families behind a long time ago. You might want to check out episode four, Daddy Issues. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but uh, is there a term for somebody who collects cartoons? Uh, Probably. D- doesn't mean I know what it is. I'm going to say hero. He's a cartoon collector, not a thesaurus. <laughs> Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned in the past, I mentioned on this week's um, Carnival Personnel, that it was a while ago, Bugs Bunny cartoons came up, the famous 11 band. Uh, Joe happened to have them, so we watched you them. You mean uh, uh, the, the, the censored 11, as they call it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, are we going to do the whole podcast as me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I jump right. in, but I can't yeah. do impressions. Well, all right. <laughs> yeah, neither can I. But, uh. But we did. We watched them, and Joe had this whole booklet that Peter had put together, and it was mesmerizing, like, how well-organized, how intense, and how, like, I don't know if there was yeah, ever a Yeah, a little frame. bit of OCD here, okay? <laughs> well, let's go. Thank you for it. Like, like, like <coughs> I look at that as a gift. Well, let's just let the audience in on the fact that Peter has collected, uh, we're only going to focus on the Warner Brothers cartoons, but he has a collection of virtually every theatrically released animated short since the beginning of film, yeah, essentially. Yeah, essentially. I mean, uh, I don't really have much in the way of the silent era. That's that's a whole other ballpark. But uh, as far as the sound era, so basically we're looking at like 1929. Like to, Steamboat Willie. You know, to ish. about, let's say 1970, but there's a little bit of spillover there. By that point, most of the studios had closed and anything trickled in. It was, you know, it wasn't quite as organized. And I even, I, I use that term loosely because even, even the studios didn't know what they were doing at certain points of time. Right. But um, you have this, but you have a, like a digital collection of all of this stuff. And you called this from as going far back as like VHS bootlegs. You started off with, you know, taking VHS bootlegs and then... Allegedly, he took... <laughs> No, but, you know, VHS, you know, or even, like, VHS you know, collections. Uh, really, you know, anything, anything that was officially released, and then stuff that was taped off TV, you know, taped. Well, what's a tape? Right. Um, Our audience Gather knows. around, children. <laughs> yes. uh, now, get the hell out of here. What are you doing listening yeah. to this podcast? But pretty much, in one way or another, uh, whether official release taped or traded from other people who taped stuff, 
you know, this is basically about a, 1,100 cartoons that in the Warner Brothers classic era. And over the course of more years than I can count, probably, I don't know, 15 years or so, I managed to get a copy of each one of them in one form or another. Some of them in, you know, in your pristine DVD Blu-ray editions. Others are bootlegged or public domain collections that, you know, really, really crappy uh, and like source, in the, and like in the case of the censored eleven, it's never been officially released. Yeah, so, so you, you only have the bootlegs to go off of. You know, so, so a lot of them, although they weren't officially released, some of them were in the public domain. Um, most notably, uh, the one Bugs Bunny cartoon that's in there called All This and Rabbit Stew is appeared in a number of public domain collections aimed at kids, but that's probably one of the more racist of the Central Eleven. But I'm well, well, just that, That's something we'll get into. It's like, were they always aimed at kids? What, and they, they were never aimed at kids. That's right. the whole thing. I mean, nowadays, you know, think of cartoons and it's for kids. But the vast majority of the directors out there, I'd even go so far as to say all of them, were made for adults. You know, there's stuff that the kids would get, but they... <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm having a bad cold, so I'm kind of... The basement uh, is helping, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, you have right. a cough? Come down to my basement. We'll exacerbate that. Yeah, okay. Exacerbate. Uh, hey, you know, it's, but, a, but so, <laughs> it's not a family show anymore. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the things. It's like, what's funny is, you know, I've always loved cartoons and even like, you know, the kid shows on Nick. My wife's always loved like things like Rugrats and kids. We would see the Pixar movies before we had kids. But what's interesting about those movies they're made for kids that would have something thrown in there for mom and dad that going over the kids had to joke where these were made for mom and dad for, <laughs> that threw something in there for the kid well like these were released in theaters so this is pre-television they were meant for to be they were just part yeah, of this was, the, this was before the you know saturday morning fair where you know everything had to be watered down and all the violence and everything this is like also that. like a lot of this is well the early stuff is pre-code you yeah, know, like yeah. The I mean, the 1930s. You know, you know, they can get away with a lot of stuff that they weren't able to get away with in, you know, in the in the 40s and 50s. But even then, I mean, obviously, there's the racial stuff that's prevalent in the cartoons, not just in the censored 11, but a lot of stuff that wouldn't fly today. But it was a different era, and you know, I mean, I'm not excusing it by any stretch of the imagination. Which you have to is. look at it, yeah. but you have to look at it from a uh, from a historical perspective, right? And they actually put that in their in the re- official releases of the Warner Brothers cartoons. They release those racially insensitive cartoons with a warning, um, and I think Whoopi Goldberg actually yeah, delivers in, it. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg did it in um, in some of the. Uh, Warner Brothers ones, uh, Disney ones had Litter Malton doing it. It's a startling to see what was fu- like humorous, and actually what aired on television when we were growing up in the seventies, eighties. Like they put that stuff on television for some time up until like the mid eighties, didn't they? Right? Do they not catch on and say, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't be showing like Bugs Bunny in blackface right, right. <laughs> oh, oh. on a constant basis?" And then later, like the the Native American stuff, and then um, the World you know, War II stuff. Oh all, God! Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all I mean, the Japanese. You know, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves, but even you know. In the 1970s and 80s, when you know uh, Saturday morning cartoons, you know there was a lot of the Bugs Bunny, you know, one of the brothers' cartoons that we watch uh, every Saturday. There were edits in it; they had already been picked through and made better for children or good or ill or whatever. But there were still, you know, in the on the UHF channels, right? You Channel know, explain, 56. Explain what watch daily. You'd watch some of the older cartoons. The content of the cartoons pretty much was intact. Uh, they would lop off the opening credits on a lot of the stuff to get more cartoons in a half hour. But the non-network 
non-Saturday morning stuff tended to be a bit more intact. Now, let's go back to the beginning because we did jump around. When did you realize that this is a passion? Growing up, I would always tune out whenever it was on TV, and I was always hoping that it would be on TV more. You know, it was there for sat, you know Saturday mornings every time. And if memory serves, it was Channel 56 th- around 3 o'clock every day, Bugs Bunny and Friends, and never missed it. Now, when did you start actively collecting? Probably about you know, a uh, freshman in, in college, uh, maybe. I remember at that point they had been out on videotape, and you know, I would I'm, I'm ashamed to say copy the uh, oh, no. the, the rented you know, I would rent the video and co- make a copy of it. Oh, horror! Uh, <laughs> I, I would buy them from you at the flea market, I would buy your copies of a copy at the yeah. flea market, right? That's... Along with the Bruins fight tapes, you don't you know? judge. <laughs> Don't, don't you? Now, here's the thing. So you start collecting, and again, anybody literally under 30 won't get this. How did you do research without the interweb? Jerry Beck is a um, very noted animation historian. Uh, pretty much any of the releases that have come out from my being in college to the present day, he's had some sort of hand in it one way or another. And around that time in the, in the mid-90s, he had put out a book uh, called Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies that really was a synopsis of every single cartoon that was put out, at least at that point. Uh, they've since released a few here and there in years later. But as far as the classic era, which for uh, Warner Brothers was 1930 to 1969, and it pretty much covered everything there. So at least I had a checklist back in the day. You know, your your videotapes only had like six to eight cartoons on them. So, and they were each thirty bucks a pop. So you know, don't have the luxury that we did uh, that you have nowadays, where you can have sixty cartoons in a collection. You had five, right? Because it was one tape. It had like a, it was like an hour long tape, and that was yep. it. Or in some cases, even a half hour long tape. So at that point, it was still being shown every day after school. Uh, so I, at that point, I was taping things off TV, and as technology got better, you know, or you know, I don't know if better is More advanced. Word. More advanced. <laughs> did, you, did you ever try to pitch your parents on why you needed two VCRs? Because nobody has two TVs. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they must be rich. <laughs> but, but it's like, could you explain to your parents it's like why you needed two VCRs? I tried to explain it. I didn't necessarily succeed. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was more of a case, you know, at that point, my... Um, my high school, it had a uh, cable studio in it, so I would always borrow a tape deck from the studio, and then... We can't relate to that at all. Wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me a guy who collects videos was in the AV club? <laughs> I, I find this hard to believe. Amazing, isn't You're it? You're making this up. Yeah. <laughs> but that's... Back the... in the analog days. Yeah, right. And now, now so, so I know, like in the early 80s, you two used to put out their own fan scene. Like, you could subscribe... And in the fan scene, they really encouraged, like, and I know the like, deadheads, my brother was a deadhead, switching tapes and stuff. And YouTube's big thing was like, hey, don't sell our music, but if Joe has this bootleg from a show two years ago here and you got this bootleg here, you know, copy it and exchange it. And, and they were like that. Was there a circle? Like, how, how were you able to reach out to others? Once the internet got into it. There were a number of message boards. Unfortunately, a lot of them are uh, are now defunct. I guess to some degree they may be on Twitter or uh, or uh, Facebook. But um, at that point, there was like Termite Terrace Trading Post, I believe was what it was called. It was just a message board that told you what was going to be on TV in the future. And in some cases, you could set up tape trades. And I think uh, once I got to the you know 900 or so mark, 
there were some that I just could not get, mainly because they weren't airing them on TV anymore. You know, so it was a matter of uh, catching people who had recorded them back when they were, and I could trade stuff that I might have gotten, you know, on a whim myself. So it was a matter of completing the collection through the grace of others. Was there ever one where you're like, one of the band ones where you're like, oh my God, I have to complete my collection. On the other hand, I don't want to put out there, hey, does anybody have the really racist stuff? Because <laughs> I really need that. Well, the, th the funny thing about it is, you know, the the more racy stuff, you know, the Censored Eleven, there were bootleg collections of them. So those weren't the hardest for me to get. The hardest ones for me to get were 1930s buddy cartoons, which, you know, who gave I, a shit about? Yeah, they're really awful. I yeah. got to, you know, they got to say, you know, when Nickelodeon first was airing cartoons, they aired them once or twice, <laughs> maybe more. This is like in the mid '80s, where not no one's taping these stuff, and trying to get those things was just next to impossible. And you know, I, there happened to be somebody on eBay who was selling right. the whole gamut of the uh, buddies, and I lucked out in that particular case. Later. On DVD, they did release some buddy cartoons, so I was able to improve what I had. But some of them that I have are originally aired from 1980s Nickelodeon. Wow. Have they since released the buddy cartoons officially? No. No. Those are, those are some that have yet to be released. What is the one tape that, like, you really persevered to get and when you got it it was like it was like your you climbed Mount Everest it was there like just one thing that eluded you forever that you finally got I remember um one of the last cartoons if not the last one it was 1969 cool cat cartoon engine trouble e-n-g-i-n-e nope no <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Joe. Yeah, no. Nice try. Yes. Um, it's And I think I probably was something that it might have been YouTube or I might have even gotten it from Jerry Beck himself. There was a period of time in which I did, you know, uh, where Jerry was selling some of the you know rarer cartoons. Not so much Warner Brothers, but, you know, uh, from other... Like Paramount. Other, or, other studios yeah. in which stuff that was never going to see the light of day, and it was done from collector to collector. And, you know, so I was able to pad my Warner Brothers library considerably that way. But I'm, I don't remember exactly what my final source was, but that was one that was missing for the longest period of time. Now, with the internet where you can find everything, do you miss, like, the hunt a little bit? Because, like, you can probably get most things... A lot easier now than you could 15, 20 years ago. Within reason. I mean, the, although stuff is out there, because it's a lot of copyrighted material and there's that, we have the studios who are sitting on a lot of this stuff, either don't know or don't care that there's a market out there for it. You know, there's people who post it on YouTube, but immediately it gets taken down for copyright purposes. So there are some stuff that, not necessarily my Warner Brothers collection, but in my other studios collection, that it's just not out there. There are a number of Woody Woodpecker cartoons from the latter part of the era, uh, you know, 1960s and early 70s, that growing up they were constantly played, but nowadays your Woody Woodpecker cartoons are not being aired, and they stopped putting out DVDs of them. So when they were doing it chronologically, a lot of cartoons in the 1960s have fallen by the wayside and aren't available, and, you know, they're... Jerry's least favorite cartoons, so he's not necessarily, he doesn't really care about having them himself. Uh, so I Which makes you want to care more. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, exactly. It's like, it, 
Because you don't have it, it makes you want it more. We can probably start getting in further into the weeds and, and maybe the, the genesis of Looney Tunes historically. So, as you stated, Looney Tunes essentially started in like the 1930. Yeah, era. it was uh, 1929. Hugh Harmon and uh, Rudy Ising put out a pilot cartoon, Bosco the Talk Inc. Kid. Leon Schlesinger was the producer of the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, and they were distributed by Warner Brothers. At this point, they weren't owned by Warner Brothers at the time. Warner Brothers would distribute them, uh, but it wasn't until the mid-40s that Leon sold to Warner Brothers outright. But the Bosco the Talking Ki- Talk Inc. Kid was a pilot for a proposed series, uh, what you know they would call Looney Tunes. And the premise of Looney Tunes was that, at least in its earliest days, uh, Looney Tunes was focusing on Bosco, a caricature of a black boy. You know, at that point in its time, it was really looking at it, you wouldn't necessarily know it was an African American boy because of the style that it was done. It wasn't until um, MGM took over that character and drew him more realistically that you actually knew the race of the um, the intended you know, race. You know, of the, yeah. It was it was more like Mickey Mouse without ears in appearance. And the name Looney Tunes is sort of a dig or an homage or just sort of like a copycat of Disney's Silly Symphonies? The Merry Melodies was more so that. Yes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. So Looney Tunes involved a series of characters. Initially, it was Bosco. By around 1933, Harmon and Ising left the Schlesinger studio and brought their Bosco character to MGM. And so they needed a replacement, and that was Buddy, which uh, some <laughs> historians describe it was basically Bosco and Whiteface. Exactly. I was going. I saw images of Buddy. So, but Buddy was, you know, if 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 Bosco was boring, Buddy was comatose. <laughs> oh. he, the Buddy cartoons were not well loved at all. And they eventually, by 1935. Well, 35, 36, brought in Porky Pig as a star, who lasted in that Looney Tunes slot through the early 40s, 1943 probably. Around 1931, they came up with a second series, um, Merry Melodies, which the gimmick of that was that unlike Looney Tunes, it would not have recurring characters, and it would involve a song. A popular song of the day, you know, the Warner Brothers had the rights to a lot of songs in their film library, you know, usually they made popular in their own films. It's sort of a bit of cross-promotion there. And so basically they created a series called Merry Melodies where the action of a cartoon really revolved around that song. These are more like song and dance kind of Exactly. Cartoons. Yeah. They, 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 yeah, they're like nondescript farm animal kind of characters. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. As time went on, you know, more stories became more popular for them and the songs eventually phased out. But at least throughout the 1930s, that was the whole point of the Merry Melodies was to boost the song library. Mm-hmm. And in 1935, uh, they went to color. Another difference between the Looney Tunes and the Merry Melodies was that the Merry Melodies were in color and the Looney Tunes remained in black and white. And that continued through most of the 30s. By the late 30s, the cartoon directors hated the songs. It's like, we have to interrupt the the flow of this cartoon to take care of the song. So sometimes they would cut the song down or they would rush through the song. It became more of a throwaway gag. But it was because it was a contractual obligation. Exactly. But but that's how it was. I mean, even even the Marx Brothers. I mean, it was like... Let's get to the song. You know, it was all about that too, and in the, the same time period. But now, now, a quick question: When you said that they went to color and they stayed in black and white, 
and and this might be. Don't look at me like you poor simpling. Were they drawn in color and just shot in black and white? Nope, they were drawn in grayscale, which led to some you know interesting things. You know, there were a, a number of cartoons that were done in black and white uh, in the '30s that got remade later in the '40s in color. Sometimes they were direct translations. In most cases, they veered off and expanded upon the story or took the story in a different direction, but they were still remakes of the same cartoon. For example, a, um, you know, there was a cartoon that starred Porky and his sidekick, Gabby the Goat, who was a, an attempt at a sidekick who lasted about three cartoons because he was not likable at all. Hey, Gabby, where are you? Where am I? Where am I? Now ain't that a smart question? I'm up in a time Kind of the poochie of his day. Or, or he's just his agent, like, upset everybody, and they just fired him <laughs> off the set, couldn't remember his line, showed up drunk. We don't, we don't, you weren't there. Right. So, it, you know, by the time it was, this cartoon was made in the 40s, the sidekick was Daffy Duck, and it became a much more funnier cartoon. A much think, funnier cartoon, you know, yeah. Or at least a funnier uh, interplay between the two of them. And as far as color as well, uh, in 1943, two-thirds of the Looney Tunes went to color. Actually, it was even earlier than that. But eventually, by mid-World War II, all the cartoons were in color. And at that point, the Merry Melodies song had been phased out. With the advent of Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny was appearing in both Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes. Uh, so we had regular characters appearing in the Merry Melodies. No songs in the Merry Melodies. Looney Tunes are now in color. There really wasn't that much of a difference between Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies going forward at that point. Now getting into the more recognizable characters of Porky Big, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, all voiced by Mel Blanc. Mostly voiced by Daffy. <laughs> Mostly, right. Um, now with Bosco, there wasn't, was Mel Blanc involved No, at Mel, that point? Mel didn't join the studio until probably mid... Mid-30s, okay. mid-late-30s. His first appearance was in a Porky Pig cartoon doing the voice of a drunk bull. Oh. Um, when Porky's first few appearances, I believe it was Joe Dougherty, he stuttered in real life. Oh, wow. So you can imagine the amount of film <laughs> they went through recording his voice. Right. Uh, and just from a cost perspective, as much as they liked him, they couldn't keep using them. Mm. We're losing light. <laughs> right, exactly. We're running out of film. So, yeah. So, at that point, Mel had been, as part of the studio, doing background voices. They asked him if he could do Porky. And he, you know, after a couple of days, he came back and said, Yeah, I can do this voice. You know, and so the Porky stutter became more of a comical effect than a real. Like speech impediment. Speech yeah. impediment, yeah. Wow. Son of a bit, son of a bit, son of a bit, gun. <laughs> you thought I was going to say son of a bitch, didn't you? <laughs> and I, I think I don't remember. You might remember on on Gilbert once they had a voice, one of the old voiceover guys, and he was saying you didn't get paid by the voice that you did or the lines that you read. You you were a day player, mm -hmm. so that's why they would have one guy come in and do ten voices. Not that he was so good and had so much range, as they were just cheap motherfuckers. Exactly, you know. And the conception was that Mel did everybody. There were a lot of cartoons, particularly in the 30s and 40s, in which he maybe did one or two characters in the thing. In some cases, the director of the cartoon or one of the writers did some voices here. The reason why Mel Blanc is known is because he got an exclusive contract saying that he would get the voice credit in exchange for 
only doing stuff for Warner Brothers. Before that point, to preserve the illusion or whatever, the voice artists were never credited. And Mel Blanc worked on a number of different studios. He was the original voice of Woody Woodpecker. His voice appeared in a lot of the Walter Lance cartoons, you know, Woody Woodpecker being one of them. He appeared in a number of the Columbia cartoons of the time. But because of his arrangement with Warner Brothers, he could no longer do theatrical shorts for other studios. He could do radio. He could do recordings. There were Woody Woodpecker records that had come out in the 50s that he was still voicing, but he was not allowed contractually to do the voice in the cartoons. Mm. Is he the godfather of a VO? Do people consider him like the uh, he's pro- kissing he's the ring? One of the, you know, he's one of the big ones of the era, particularly in his time. You know, he was very prolific as far as that is concerned. Was he a rock star or was he... Eh. I, think, I mean, did people, like, when he went to premieres, when they, because these, these aired in movie theaters, did they have big premieres like they would, like, Gone with the Wind? And You know, it was more tacked on to the movie, so there wasn't a Bugs Bunny premiere like there would be a Gone with the Wind Right, premiere. it's almost it, like it's like when you're watching YouTube now, and, like, you have a channel, and it's like, oh, it's a new video. And we're like, oh, it's a new Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah, I mean, there would be newsreels, there would be travelogues, there would be a cartoon, there would be the main feature. So it was all part of the same package. As far as recognizability is concerned, it probably wouldn't have hit Mel Blanc until like the era of television when that stuff would just get rerun and rerun and rerun. And then people would start to see the names at home like every day, like, oh, Mel Blanc, Mel Blanc, Mel Blanc. I mean, to a degree, I mean, but Mel was also a regular on the Jack Benny radio program. You know, so people would know him from there. And in 1940, 48, 49, somewhere in that ballpark, he had his own radio show, that uh, the Mel Blanc show, that lasted for two seasons. So he was known for a number of reasons, the name recognition by this point in the Warner Brothers cartoons, but also just his appearances elsewhere. So it became much more known than some of the other ones when it reached the TV era. Dawes Butler, Stan Freeberg, Frank Welker, a lot of those became much well-known as well. Right. Just as prolific as Mel was, it was just the time in which it came through. You know, he was, you know, the grandfather of voice artists in, to some degree. The man of a thousand voices, he was nicknamed. Were these looked at as like, um, were you looked at if you were a, a director of these at the time? Because I know later on. Like, you know, when the video store started, they would have, like, the best of this director or that director, not just the characters. But at the time, were they looked at, like, real Hollywood directors? Who not were at they, all. No, no, they were junior no, varsity. They were, they were just funny fair. Termite Terrace was the nickname for the Warner Brothers animation studio. And it there was a reason why it was called Termite Terrace. <laughs> it was a pit. Uh-huh. Um, so they were second-class citizens, most of them, while it was enjoyable you have your A movies, you had your B movies, you had your C movies, and then you had your cartoons. So, you know? so, so was it like, oh, you're in a band? Yeah, I am. I'm a bass player. Oh. So, <laughs> so you're kind of in a band, but right. not. You're right. You're, I mean, you're not going to get laid, but you're in a band. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody loved the cartoons, but they didn't have the respect that your uh, feature films would have. And the irony is they've outlived most of it. Like, you know, I mean, here we are talking about it where, you know, 90% of the movies, you know, from that era have 
have disappeared unless you're – now, I made a note for myself. The World War II ones, did the government pay for any of those propaganda ones? To some degree, less – well, um, I was going to say less so with Warner Brothers, but private snafu comes to mind. Once you know World War II hit, Disney Studio did a lot of propaganda films – um, well, did a lot of propaganda films before World War II, man. but that's another matter entirely. <laughs> Just uh, for the other side. On many sides. <laughs> but, um, Fine animators on many sides. The armed forces got together with primarily the Warner Brothers, the Schlesinger studio, Warner Brothers, but also a couple of the other studios as time went on. But original, initially, the private snafu cartoons which basically focused on character, private snafu, you know, snafu standing for situation normal, all fucked up. <laughs> Fouled up is what they said. In, but yeah, but basically they were, as much as the standard fare of cartoons were intended for adults, these really were. A lot of cheesecake shots involved, a lot of more adult humor. You know, obviously we're dealing with World War II and the you know, war and everything like that. But they were, in effect, training films for the soldiers, you know, don't go spreading rumors, look out for booby traps, watch out for malaria, you know, that type of, you know, lessons. And of course, Snafu is the soldier who completely always fucked up. The enemy has fled, abandoning the area. As our forces move up, they must exercise great care. Every object is a possible booby trap. If you are a boob, you will be trapped. Eh, yeah, wish the hell you'd shut up. I ain't no boob and I won't be trapped. So that was, you know, popular to the GIs of the day. And as time went on, I believe either they wanted to cut the budgets or Leon wanted more money for them or whatever, and they eventually... Snafu-like cartoons were popping up from other studios. I know the Walter Land studio did at least one or two of them. For probably a third of the price. So yeah. Probably. Um, so those were your standard ones, you know, or that, that was the biggest war effort. But those around are like, the, those around, are the commissioned ones. Those are the commissioned ones. Yeah. But in your everyday cartoon library, you know, you're dealing with the average public. You know, you're going to deal with a lot of topical humor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cartoons are coming out pretty much at least 24 cartoons a year. I think in the late 30s, they were probably 36 a year, but, you know, they were a little leaner in the war years and a little even more leaner, you know, in the 50s and beyond. So you're dealing with cartoons that you're, you're going to see Nazis and Asian stereotypes, you know, specifically at that Japanese, Japanese, you know, uh, and you German. Know. Don't forget the Germans. Really, the that point they were, you know, they were our enemies in I World mean, War Two. So two titles that come to mind regarding the Japanese were uh Tokyo Jokyo. Tokyo Jokyo, yeah. And Bugs Bunny nips the nips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Hello, Biff. Which Biff is lifted. Like, like, one of my best friends, he's Japanese, and, and like he's listed in my phone as Biff the Nip to this day. Because I'm a bad person and a worse friend. But, you know, I mean, particularly Tokyo Jokyo, but, you know, both of the cartoons, they just... Watching them today, it's, oh, it's, awful. it's awful. I mean... It's hard. They... But that's for me. I know. <laughs> in the 1990s, they released a collection, The Golden Age of Looney Tunes, that on VHS was 10 volumes. 
Uh, at that point, they were on Laserdisc as well. Did you um, have those, Joe? Joe I has wish. a Laserdisc player. Right and as, I think do you probably still have a Laserdisc player yourself. I, I don't, but I was. <laughs> but at, at that point, I had borrowed one and was right. able to get the. The Golden Age of Looney Tunes on Laserdisc. They released five volumes of that. So mm-hmm. you know, which pretty much they released their entire pre nineteen forty eight library. But anyway, in one of the volumes, in the volume one of the Golden Age of Looney Tunes, uh, was The Best of Bugs. And Bugs Bunny Nips the Nips was included in that one. And there was a lot of fallout from audiences that were, you know... What the F is this? Yeah, exactly. What is this doing on a collection that's not bannered as, you know... It would be one thing if there were a disclaimer, but it was not. Right, it was just thrown in with, like, all the other classic... Hey, kids, let's throw in (laughs) Dad's old favorite cartoons when he was a kid. Right. So I believe they pulled that particular volume from distribution. I think they re-released it uh, with a substitute cartoon... Either that or they just never re-released it at all. It got out there. And that was the tamer of the two. You know, Tokyo Jokyo, which was a a 1942, 43 Norma Cabe cartoon. And it was basically, you know, a travelogue cartoon that lampooned the Japanese with, you know, a lot of unfunny, even in its day, unfunny jokes. Just like vile, hate-filled kind of like... Propaganda to, you know... Well, like you said, it's like... They didn't do that to the Germans, even in our cartoons and our propaganda stuff. I mean, they were the bad guy, but we didn't dehumanize them like we did. I mean, we didn't round up German people in the country. You know, it was really yeah. okay to go that extra mile to show how much we. How the, much different the they Germans were. never attacked U.S. soil. See, the, uh, the Germans invaded Pearl Harbor, according to. <laughs> oh, the, well, yeah. Was it over? Oh, Were the Germans invaded anyways, Pearl Harbor? Yeah. But yeah, the Japanese became the big enemy. Yes, there were a number of cartoons dealing with the Nazis. Even Bugs and Daffy got into the act themselves. Oh yeah, um, I remember like know, they would like air mate. Fly over to hair meets hair. Do you want to talk about the blue ribbon stuff real quick? Uh, the blue ribbons was a cost saving measure. At some point in the, you know, around 1948, they realized, well, they've got this back stock of cartoons. Why spend the extra money to make 12 new cartoons a year when they can re-release? Let's go to the vault. Exactly. But they didn't want to let the public know that these are old cartoons because, you know, we don't have the benefit of rerun. So we're going to lop off the opening credits of these cartoons, put it in a brand new opening credit, Blue Ribbon Special Release, and let the public think that it's another brand new cartoon because right. if the if by this point a generation or half of a generation had already come through, they're not going to remember what got released you know, eight years ago. So they'll supplement their library that way. And, and what they did was they didn't just take like a copy of the original reel of the like I say like a 1930s cartoon. No, they cut the original negative. They, they cut the they literally cut out the old title card from the original negative and said. And then plaster on their little blue ribbon, like, you know, greatest hits, basically. And they didn't salvage the... Uh, what they trimmed off. What they trimmed right, off. Right, it was so just like, how fast can we get this into the trash can? Because I, this is taking up valuable space uh, in our did studio. Did people get paid who worked on it? Was it this is pre-union. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no residuals. Wow. You, know, yeah, so you it was a get paid of, a day okay. rate, right? And then that was it. It's just a matter of, okay, before, you know, when you're doing 36 cartoons a year, now we only need you for 24. Maybe you'll get a raise from what you were paying before. 
so you're doing less output. Yeah, and so it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and so like those original title cards are just lost to history. And by that point, you know, the quality of the animation went downhill as well because you know before you had your lavishly painted backdrops, now you've got some indications of a backdrop. But what was interesting, I was talking to you earlier about how the animation process was back in the older Warner Brothers Studio days. I asked Peter, like, well, what, did, what did they do with the original cells? You know that they weren't backstocking them. They washed they, them off. They literally wiped, they took a Windex to the cell, the, the, the plastic cell, and just, said, well, we did that. Well, plastic, plastic was in high demand, you know, particularly in the, in the war years. Yeah. And this is a cartoon. We're not, it's never going to see the light of day again, you know. We got it on film. You that's know? it. That's yeah. so Not Warner Brothers, but there were some studios that destroyed their films, you know, after the fact. Yeah, no, so, it's you know, like, isn't it like the early Carson stuff because they just taped they over. They wiped them, yeah. Like, there's early game shows where they were wiped. Yeah. Like, oh, the, you know, heartbreaking. the material that they were on was more important than what was on them. Right. In the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Warner Brothers Studio Store, you know, or even your Disney Store, these limited edition animation styles from particular cartoons, they're recreations. They're not the original ones. Right. Don't, don't tell my wife that. She has a bunch of <laughs> so She now also I, has a deed to a bridge in New York that I have tried to convince her. Oh, which one? Because I have... <laughs> Never mind. Did Bugs sell that one? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we're getting now into the, the golden age of Looney Tunes history, which is essentially what, 19... 19- 44 to like the mid 60s so like 20 yeah, years and yeah I, I would i would say the golden age is probably you know your late 30s through 1948 okay uh at which point you know becomes the silver age in 1948 in addition to starting the blue ribbon cartoons television was coming out you know starting to become a big thing so they would sell the backlog to tv and that's where your afternoon shows or your saturday morning cartoons started to come in they figured, okay, they're not going to need it for the theater anymore. We can't make any more money on this, so we're going to sell you our back library. But then we're also getting into the quality of the animation became top-notch. I mean, everything was sort of top-notch to begin with, but then as technology progressed and how and, and, and as other techniques progressed, they be, there became more works of art and yeah. less throwaway cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... But, I'd still maintain that the that the highest quality of the cartoons would would be the 1940s. Mm-hmm. By the 1950s, the quality of the cartoons started to go downhill. By the time you hit the 60s, they're awful. Um, yeah, because I'm looking online and I'm looking at like the academy because we're getting to like Academy Award nominations, and I'm not sure when the category for best animated short started. Well, I, mean, I believe it was the early 40s, but it wasn't until the late 40s that a Warner Brothers cartoon won. MGM and Disney dominated a lot of the early 40s winners. Yeah, like one, one, of, the, one of the examples is um, For Sentimental Reasons from 1949. Pepe Le Pew. Pepe Le Pew cartoon directed by Chuck Jones. And I guess maybe talk a little bit about the directors. Chuck Jones, Tex Avery who later went on to more fame with MGM, but he started with Warner Primarily, Warner uh, the, you know, going through the 30s, Frizz Freeling, Chuck Jones, Clampett. and Tex Avery were the, were the big directors of the period. Of, oh, Bob Clampett as well. Frizz Freeling, well, actually, Chuck Jones at the time really didn't, wasn't, uh, I'm, I'm lying here. Uh-huh. Uh, Aren't we all, though? Yeah. Yeah. See, we, we just don't correct ourselves. Right, exactly. We, we just double the first person to actually admit that they were lying on a podcast yeah. that we recorded. You will never work in uh, Fox News. <laughs> yeah. But go on. Frizz Freeling uh, did a lot of the um, of the Mary Melodies cartoons, and Bob Clampett did a lot of the Porky Pigs. 
Tex Avery, I believe, did some of the Merry Melodies as well. And they were you know more popular. At some point, uh, Frizz Freeling left Warner Brothers to work for MGM in the late 30s. And at that point, I believe Chuck Jones started to become popular, you know, or you know, took his place. I may be jumbling my history a little bit here, but those were the big but big the directors. There was also, you know, Frank Tra- Tashlin and to the beginning of the 40s, it was Norm McCabe as well. Tex Avery was fired or quit, depending on whose version of the story you want to hear, after a fight, an argument that he had with uh, Leon Schlesinger about the end of, of a cartoon. Heckling Hair, a um, Bugs Bunny cartoon. Um, like a physical fight or just sort of an, uh, a, an argument? Or, you know, a heated argument. The end of the cartoon involved Bugs and a dim-witted dog falling <laughs> for probably a minute of screen time. Um, and at the end, stopping just before they hit the ground and say, fooled you, didn't we? The original ending of that, they were supposed to go fall down off another cliff. So here, here we go again. And as legend has it, Tex and Leon got an argument about... How many cliffs were actually you know, going yeah, to be falling. Yeah, and Leon excised the original ending from it. And you know, as a result of that, he... Tex wanted two cliffs. Yeah, exactly. Or at least that's the way the story goes. Uh, there are some versions of the story in which he was already out the door by this point, and that was just the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. But Tex went to MGM at that point and made a lot of hilariously well-done cartoons. Really, and, you know, he really shown at that point. And as the '40s went on, Chuck Jones became much more prolific. Um, you know, early in the, in the '30s, Chuck was really trying to imitate Disney a lot and not necessarily doing it very well. I mean, he dealt with a lot of slow pacing of cartoons, and sitting through an early Chuck Jones cartoon was monotonous at best. Kind of like our early episodes. <laughs> so, kind of like our later episodes, actually. Do you... Okay, I'm guessing Chuck Jones isn't your favorite director. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. I love some of his later stuff. I mean, The Grinch... He directed the. I mean, that's not one of them. But even his, you know, even by 1940, some of his Porky and Daffy cartoons are hilarious. But do a marathon of his of his 1930s Sniffles cartoons, and you'll want to kill yourself. <laughs> That'll be the last image I see as I'm swinging from you know, a if rafter. We could only get a hold of them, Joe. I, if only there were a way. But <laughs> um, I mean, there's so much to get into, and we're. Do kinda... you have a favorite director? The, uh, somebody whose worst cartoon is better than most people's best cartoon. I would have to say that I Tex Avery. But again, that's you know, more so his MGM work than his. I mean, I like his Warner Brothers work as well. But as far as throughout his whole career, oh yeah, I probably ha- would have to say you know, I would have to say Tex his Avery whole entire body the, of work. Yeah, body of work. You know, Frank Tashlin, who didn't do a whole lot. There were some of his cartoons that I find funnier than some Tex Avery cartoons. Frank Tashlin did a few early Porkies, and I can't stand them. But there was you know, one cartoon that he did. Um, there was a Duffy and Porky cartoon that he did that I'm on the floor every time I'm watching it. Um, Is it the one where they are in, in the night in the of the ho- hotel? The hotel, yeah. yeah. I forget uh, what it's called, but they, they, it's, it's just like a long <laughs> night of Porky trying to get to sleep and Daffy... Just doing everything he can. No, to... this was this this involved uh, Porky and Daffy in Porky Pig's feet. 
oh. spelled F-E-A-T. Uh-huh. It involved Porky and Daffy being in a hotel, and they have to... They're not allowed to check out until they pay, and they don't have any money to pay. So trying to escape from the hotel and the series of gags involving them and the, um, the concierge who won't let them out, which actually culminates in the very first appearance of Bugs Bunny, the first time Porky and Daffy meet Bugs Bunny. Now, was there a previous bunny character that was... There, there were a couple of pre-Bugs Bunny bunnies. There were a couple of just rabbits. Chuck Jones's Presto Changeo was one where there was a rabbit as a as a bit. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't that much in the way of uh, bugs per se. And then there were a couple of cartoons that were done by uh, Ben Hardaway, I believe, from Cal Dalton, that had some bunnies that looked like a proto bugs. But it wasn't until Tex Avery's 1941 a Wild Hair in which the personality of Bugs. Not necessarily the final voice. He wasn't quite as nasal as he became. He had, he had sort of like a talk like this. It, it, more of that, yeah. yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, his second appearance, which was a, you know, which was a Chuck Jones Bugs cartoon, he his voice was even deeper before they actually realized the, the direction in which in which to go. Mm-hmm. While Wild Hair was the official debut of Bugs what? Bunny he had appeared in a couple earlier ones as a proto-Bugs. I, I always joke about, like, the, the range of Daffy Duck. What a great actor. Because the way he started out of almost being, like, a, a coked-out, bouncing off the walls to a more um, dastardly, you know what I mean, methodical bad guy, you know, foe, yeah. versus when he started, you know. And is that a director's <laughs> choice, or did, you know, did each director have was, leeway to take him? It was an evolutionary thing, you know. Where he started, as you said, in you know a really, you know, <laughs> yeah, Bounce Tex Avery, really Daffy Duck. And as time went on, he, in you know nineteen forties, which was my favorite era of Daffy, he was loony, he was zany, but he wasn't disgruntled. Yeah. When did he go from oh, to you're despicable? 1950s is, you know, Chuck Jones' Hunter's trilogy that involved Daffy, Bugs, and Elmer Fudd. Is it Duck, Rabbit, Duck? Duck season, Wabbit rabbit season. season. Yeah. And Rabbit Fire. Rabbit season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duck season. Wabbit whole, season. Wabbit season. That was the- <laughs> That is in fire. <laughs> that was the start of the bitchy Daffy. Uh, he was and, always getting the short end of the... To, exactly. He, he was playing like second banana to Bugs at that you point. Know, and then as time went on in, you know, 1960s, when they paired him with Speedy Gonzalez... He had no more redeeming qualities, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know the, the the Frank Burns era of Daffy Duck. But I personally, I liked Daffy when he was intelligent, but not bitchy. Yeah, and that's forties, nineteen forties. Yeah. What about Bugs? What's your favorite Bugs? Again, I'll probably go. I'll probably go with the forties, post-war forties, or just, post-war forties. Yeah. You know, you know, in which he was more of a a stinker. Well, more of just, you know, he didn't take guff from other people, but he wasn't necessarily going out to be a... An a-hole. You know, he's more reactionary right, like than he, calculating. He, there would be some sort of, like, construction going on around his hole yeah, or his something. His home is being invaded, yeah. so he's going to, you know, of course he realizes this means war. Right, you, right. Know, <laughs> you know, as opposed to actively seeking someone to heckle. To be a t- uh, who was your favorite Porky Pig? Porky Pig was the best... I keep going to the 40s, but even the 50s, when he paired off with Daffy, 
when the flip-flop happened where Porky was no longer the star and he was now the sidekick. Were they parroting the buddy movies at the time? Were, were, they, were they trying to correlate the, the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope kind of things? Or were I think they, they, predated, they predated that whole point. I mean, Porky went with, you know, tried to have a couple of different sidekicks. As a matter of fact, Porky started out as the sidekick. You know, there was Porky and Beans, where Beans the cat, a very short-lived character, was the lead and Porky was the sidekick. But Porky became popular enough that he was the star but he wasn't an interesting star. See, this is like finding out that Itchy and Scratchy had careers before the Itchy and Scratchy <laughs> show. You know, it's, it's, the same thing, it's the same thing with on the Disney cartoons where you really try watching a marathon of Mickey Mouse cartoons. No. No. <laughs> oh, is, is that rhetorical? <laughs> you know, where there's nothing wrong with the character himself. It's just that he alone by himself without anyone to play off. He's bland. He's the straight man. He, he, there's no right. humor to him. And Porky had that same problem. Uh, there were a number earlier, you know, mid-Porky cartoons in which, because he could actually had to be in there, you know, he would appear at the beginning or at the end, you know, everything was going on around him. So when they finally said, okay, Daffy's the star and Porky's the sidekick, that's when it became a lot more interesting. There was a couple hunting cartoons with Porky being the hunter and Daffy basically doing the Bugs motif and Porky taking the Elmer motif. Their dynamic really worked together where Porky was the stooge. How early on did Porky Pig get the role of saying that's all folks at the end of the um, Tunes cartoons? I'd say probably when... Like early 30s. When Mel Blanc started to take over the role of Porky Pig, all Looney Tunes ended with the That's All Folks bit. Around 1943, when Bugs would appear in the Looney Tunes cartoons, there were a few of them in which they ended, and that's the end. But primarily, That's All Folks was reserved for the Looney Tunes, and it wasn't until... Actually, now that I think about it, the Merry Melodies did end with... You know, a script of That's All Folks. Right, with nobody delivering the line. Exactly. Well, actually, in the earliest points, there were various characters from that particular cartoon that would say, that's all, folks. But Looney Tunes, Porky, was the most popular version of that. And that was basically, I want to say, 36, 37 through 43 to mid-40s, at which point it just became the script for both versions. These characters are just so important to me, sadly. Uh, Elmer Fudd. He doesn't seem to ever have an arc. He seems like he was always Elmer Fudd. Um, for the most part, he Elmer started out as a character called Egghead, who sometimes you consider him a separate character, but he was sort of like that proto-Bugs. He was a proto-Elmer that eventually... The look of Egghead continued, but he was called Elmer Fudd. But and it he had a red nose. A right? red nose in some cartoons. You know, he was a, a much geekier looking character. Almost like a derpy W.C. Fields. To a degree, yeah. I guess. But um, again, 1941's Wild Hair was where the um, character of Elmer Fudd got cemented. And, you know, he was consistent through most of that classic era Arthur Q. Bryan, who voiced him through most of his tenure, particularly from 19, pre-1941, once, once the character was named Elmer, he was voicing him. But um, 1941, Wild Hair, he was the official Elmer Fudd until his death in 1959 or somewhere around that period of time. Arthur Q. Bryan was voicing him, at which point mm-hmm. a couple of different actors tried voicing him. Contrary to popular belief, Mel Blanc did not voice him in the classic era. Oh. It wasn't until the TV cartoons of the 70s in which 
Mel was convinced to do a, a new Elmer Fudd. Yeah. But Hal Smith, who was best known as uh, Otis the Drunk on the Andy Griffith <laughs> this show. This is the second week in a row Otis the Drunk has come up. <laughs> he, I, I forget how he came up on last week's show. but yeah, you know, Otis the Drunk, he voiced Elmer in a number of 60s cartoons. And he didn't sound like Arthur Q. Bryan's oh, Elmer oh, at yeah, all. Yeah. He had the wisp, but it, you could tell. You know, even as a kid, I remember saying Elmer sounds different. It's like one of my favorite, and, and we were just talking about it beforehand, I've always loved Foghorn Leghorn. Like mm-hmm. that, the, the evolution of that character. It's like such, such a departure. Know, there's, there's nothing. He was but, intended as a one-shot character. When was he introduced? Henry Hawk was originally the star of that Barnyard series. And I'm he, a chicken hawk. And he... You're a chicken. <laughs> yeah, and it was, I believe the cartoon was... One of the first ones was the Foghorn Leghorn, but he, the, I, I don't believe that was the name of the uh, um, Crowing Pains. That was the <laughs> Crowing Pains was the first appearance of Foghorn Leghorn, and the, the gimmick was Henry was just going to meet a really loudmouth rooster. Let's bury the hatch. I say, let's bury the hatchet, but not in anyone's head, boy. But, hatchet head. But that's a joke, boy. You missed it. Went right past you. You gotta keep. I say, you gotta keep on your toes. But toes, that is. But the fast ones get right by you. Keep your ears open. But yappity yappity yep. I can't get a word in edgeways. Talk talk talk. But but no wonder you're not sharp. You gotta always. I say, you gotta always listen. Shut up. I'm not sure, but this might be a chicken. And, you know, he was intended as a one-shot character, but he proved so popular that he he became the star of that Bob McKimson's Bonyard strip. Inspired by the popular character of Senator Cleghorn, mm-hmm. a blustery southern politician. Wow. Um, Mar- oh, uh, por- portrayed by somebody else. Okay, go Marvin ahead. Marvin the Martian. He was a character that appeared once in the classic era, uh, pre-48 era. Uh, and this but is he was, all the same thing. When did the little man from Mars persona take off? I mean, was that like around forever, or, or did they probably start like a, probably the like little Sputnik green space man? Age I mean, you know, the the whole gimmick of uh, there are other cartoons that dealt with Martian invasions in the forties. You know, I think War of the Worlds probably started that whole you know, 30s, mindset. Yeah. You know, but the character of Marvin Martian appeared in a nineteen uh, forties cartoon, but it, it didn't appear again until. Well, actually, he did have a couple of cartoons in the late 40s, but as far as the, you know, using 1948 as the before and after, you know, the BCAD type of mindset, with the exception of his first appearance, all of his appearances were in the post-48 years, and that's where his personality evolved and his voice finalized to the one that you're most... Most accustomed to. Most accustomed to, yeah. Now, I don't know if they're my favorite, but they might be my favorite. The Roadrunner Wild E. Coyote. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think my favorite sight gag of all time is his business card. <laughs> I think Wild E. Coyote. Uh, Wild E. Coyote, Coyote genius. genius. <laughs> yeah, I never liked it when Wild E. Coyote started talking. That was kind of a jump the shark moment for me. But when well, were those first introduced well, to you? Uh, they made a first appearance in Fast and Furious in 1948. <laughs> um and right. even the titles yeah. just, yeah. <laughs> and it was an, again intended as a one-off the whole idea was just taking a different motif on a chase cartoon they'd done dogs and cats and cats and mice and they figured okay let's try a different one a coyote and a roadrunner again only intended to be once and people loved it and you know that pretty much was one of them that went through the entire classic era at that point 
There was a period of time where the Wiley Coyote talking ones actually happened in between them, in which he was introduced as a different, you know, I mean, the same character, but intended as a foil for bugs, but. And that appeared in a couple of different cartoons over the course of the 50s and I'm possibly into the 60s. But it was really in between the others. And at the same time, in addition to the Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner, there's the Ralph, and Ralph, Sam. Ralph Wolf and uh, Sam Sheepdog, where it's a different Hi, character. Hello, Ralph. Morning, Ralph. <laughs> Morning, Sam. A, the same character, but a different character. It's just, you know, I think like one had a black nose and one had a red that's nose. That's exactly the difference between the two of them. But you know, you're still going to be- I'm big on noses. Now- my last question, and you may or may not know this, because you are a wealth of knowledge. Where the fuck did Wild E. Coyote come up with the money to buy all that stuff from Acme? <laughs> and this is pre-Amazon. I mean, yeah, I mean, exactly. He, invent, he, he invented Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. He mined it. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, they're out in the desert. You but, know. But yeah, pre-Amazon. Like, Bezos must have been a big fan. He's like, <laughs> Jeff Bezos hey, was like, hey, I think they were onto something. Uh -huh. All right. Censored 11. Go. Censored 11. Well... Going back to where, when I said in 1948, they uh, wanted to sell their back library to television and home video, there were 11 cartoons that usually when they came out, they caused an uproar enough that in the back of their mind, they knew that there was a problem with it. But also, as you know, 1948, and where not all of the racial problems had ended, but enough of them had ended where they looked back at it and said, what were we thinking when we made this? This is not going to fly anymore. They selected these 11 cartoons from their color library that they decided are not going to be released into their... Like their syndication, syndication. package. But, but they didn't destroy them. No, they... The Prince May, still... Hey, maybe, maybe in... You know, seventy years they will be elected, and this stuff won't come. Yeah, back I mean, around. I guess I guess they figured that as long as they didn't release them publicly, then that's you know, they, as good they as existed. It's in, get. They existed in their vaults; they were stored. It right. wasn't necessarily intended that they were ever going to release them to the degree that they released them in the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. And every time a new medium comes up, there's always talk amongst the collecting community for animation. Are they going to release the Censored 11 finally? Like, it's 2018. Are we going to finally I mean, get I, this? As I understand it, they have been restored, you know, at least from a posterity perspective. But they haven't been able to, because it's still thought of as kitty fair, to release it. And it's also kind of dark, too. It's just like, okay, these are really racially insensitive cartoons that are available on Blu-ray for $29.99. Yeah. <laughs> personally, from a historical perspective... If you're releasing it to a collector's market for that purpose with the proper disclaimers, I say go for it. Mm. But yes, they don't have any business being on television unless it's a documentary purpose for that mindset. I can just imagine the backlash it would receive on social media now. Now, yes. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you were trying to release like, oh, by the way, we're Warner Brothers. not. Bro <laughs> right. We're Warner Brothers and we want to make a little bit like extra money. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, how much money? That's the other thing is like, what kind of a market would they really have? Not a lot. It's really the who would buy only it? the collectors know that they even exist, first of all. Right. You know, and so, rightly so, from a money perspective, particularly now where the DVD market for that stuff has come and gone, right. you know, physical media is just gone. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when you know, the restored collections were still coming out and animation was, you know, one of the things that they were releasing. And Twitter that didn't would exist. Have, yeah. Right. That would have been the time to release it. You right. know, the um, Looney Tunes uh, Golden Collection that had six DVD volumes out, they could have taken 
one of those volumes, one of the discs on that volume could have been a censored 11 disc, and that probably would have been the best way to package that. Wouldn't it be great if, like, all this time, like, if you just turn the DVD upside down? Like, okay, okay. <laughs> like they the term Easter egg has changed over the last 10, 15 years. I was right place at the right time when I lived in L.A., Peter, and I worked for a company, then I owned a company that did hundreds of DVDs for Universal Music Group, hundreds and hundreds. And what Easter eggs used to be is hidden material on it, like not like, oh, here's an homage like in the background, but it was almost like the up, down, left, right, right. Oh, the Contra code. The Contra, the Contra code. When we started making DVDs, you know, we would do a Tom Petty collection, and they would hide. Like, it Mm -hmm. wouldn't be credited on the DVD. It wouldn't be in the credits. It wouldn't be on the box. But if you knew, as soon as the disc went in and you hit up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, enter, it would take you to a secret menu. Or for that matter, in the the whole, uh, you know... Audio discs did the same thing around that time period of time. You know, whereas, you know, like track 99, or if you wait 10 minutes after the last track... This, right. You know, oh, never mind. They did that. They did yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, or if you mind. put it into a computer and you look for a special file. It, it, you, right. It, you uh, uh, enhance CDs. So it's to enhance CDs and right. stuff like that. But like you could hide stuff. And, and wouldn't it be interesting if they're out there? Like like that, that, that <laughs> someone really hasn't discovered them yet uh, on that box set that they did that. But. I can tell you they're not. <laughs> okay. If you play the laser disc backwards, it's <laughs> I will not kill my neighbor. But I mean, look quickly. I Shut guess up, do, you, dog. do you want to talk about the censored eleven list real quick? I can just write yeah, down. Yeah, please, please. So here's the awful wait, wait. titles. Wait, hold on, hold on. Can you name them? Uh, not as well as Joe Ken with the list in front of me. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I mean, for the sake of brevity. I could probably, you know, he can mention it and, I, and I'll know which ones they are. So just in chronological order. Hitting the trail uh, of Hallelujah Land. Hitting the trail for Hallelujah Land. Uh, <laughs> Sunday Go to Meetin' Time. Clean Pastures. Uncle Tom's Bungalow. Wow. <laughs> Jungle Jitters. Uh-huh. The Isle of Pingo Pongo. And all this and Rabbit Stew, which were both Tex Avery cartoons, and now all this and Rabbit Stew was the was the uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon. Of wait, the wait, wait! 11. Is that the one where the two guys were on the raft? And no, that's why Kiki Rabbit. That's actually okay. A good okay, one. okay. Yeah. Um, um, but then you have Coal Black and the Seven Dwarfs. Coal Black and the Seven Dwarfs. And the Seven Dwarfs. Wow, <laughs> which you know was, is actually a good cartoon. You know, in and of itself, I mean, it was it was a Bob Clampett cartoon. It was stylistically done as a very well-done cartoon. They even had uh, African-American voice actors and singers playing the roles. So it was in a... Kind of a backhanded way. In a backhanded way, there was a bit of respect to them, but the stereotypical caricatures do not translate well to them. Right, it was sort of like this weird side... You know, it was a parody. It was a parody of Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but it was also a wartime cartoon. So there was a lot of topical references there, but it was a black take on. Uh, there were caricatures of black uh, people, but then you have also Tin Pan Alley Cats, which is the other Bob Clampett censored eleven cartoon. Angel Puss and Goldilocks and the Jiving Bears, which by first feeling, which again Goldilocks and the Jiving Bears, you know. In a story-wise itself, it was I think it was a well-done cartoon, but 
you know, you have the caricature. The bears are very, you know, talk with your stereotypical... Amos and Andy kind of... Exactly. Yeah. It is almost like a dig at, like, how whitewashed the Disney cartoons were. It's like, well, why don't we just do the same story, but with from a, a black angle? But it's... They went a little too far with their portrayal of... Well, and those characters dog. are public domain, right? Like, he didn't right. invent... Like, which, by the way, when it, when you talk about the Seren Dwarfs, and maybe Peter knows this... What did the seven dwarfs say when Prince Charming woke up Snow White? What? Oh, well, back to jerking off. Hey, anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. What did Cinderella say when she got to the ball? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and on that, the censored 13 that we're getting to. Okay. So, and is it wrong? Do you have a favorite censored 11? Oh, please. Is it, no, is there one that you're like, I you know, Cole it was Black. done really good. I think Cole yeah, Black and I, I would have to say, I would have to say Cole Black in and of itself is probably, if you can remove yourself from the racial humor, which I realize is a difficult thing to do, of the 11, I'd probably say that was probably the best made cartoon. It's kind of like saying there are funny episodes of The Cosby Show. You know, you have to remove <laughs> certain things yeah. from... Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> Tex Avery's All This and Rabbit Stew, as a Bugs Bunny cartoon in and of itself, I think it was humorous and typical of its era of cartoons. But the hunter, rather than an Elmer Fudd, you were dealing with a step-and-fetch-it caricature, a very lazy, dim-witted, slow... Portuguese. Wait, no. <laughs> am I shocked? You beat me to You know, Hunter, who speaks in your stereotypical drawl, if you take that same storyline and substitute Elmer, it would still play today. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's one joke... Uh, that involved Bugs leading the hunter through a hollow log, which, you know, was put out over a cliff and constantly spinning the log. That same gag was reanimated later in an Elmer Fudd cartoon. It worked fine. But watching it in hindsight, the racial parts of it is, are unfunny, very, very offensive. But the storyline itself, once you remove that element from it, could be shown today. Do you have a favorite cartoon? Like, you can watch one cartoon the rest of this year. What is it? Like, like you can't watch a cartoon to Christmas, and you can open it up on Christmas and watch it. What is it? You know, um, one that I particularly, uh, in my 20s, I, I loved to death, and I, and I still do. I don't know if I necessarily call it my favorite, but it's the one that, that jumps to mind when you uh, ask the question. It was a 1940-something Chuck Jones Merry Melody called The Dover Boys at Pimento University or The Rivals of Roqueford Hall. It was a parody of the 1890s um, gay melodrama. Gay meaning happy, not gay meaning gay of the, this day and age. But it was one of the first cartoons that utilized what they called smear animation, in which to help speed up the action in some fast moments, the way that they draw the characters, it was like smeared across the screen. Uh, if you freeze frame it, it's really surreal. And I, that came out in that particular cartoon, and it was a technique that was utilized throughout the history of the Warner Brothers cartoons from that point on. But just some of the humor, some of the jokes, some of the asides that happened in that cartoon, I was on the floor inconsolable laughing <laughs> the first time I had ever seen that cartoon. 
Uh, and I had never seen it as a kid. I had seen it for the first time. I was probably 19 years old, and I was laughing my ass off at the hilarity of it. And that's a deep, deep, deep cut. We're this, talking the deepest of cuts. I mean, this that's, is a yeah, yeah. No, it's like yeah. I mean, look at that title card. Can you? Re- I don't even remember the title card. Uh, it's like you know, it's like a doily laced. You know, it almost looks like the, the font is from like the Music Man kind of thing. You know, but I mean, um, there's there's one bit of it. You know, it's really not. You know. The joke itself is not necessarily funny out of context, but it, we're introduced to the villain, you know, Dan Backslide, who, you know, is in a um, bar and notices the heroes hiding out in the bar, you know, because they're playing hide and seek for whatever reason. And he goes outside to take advantage of the hero's girlfriend, you know, the, the hero's collective girlfriend, Tom, Dick and Larry and their girlfriend, Dora. Mm-hmm. Which was which the way you know, back then. But um, so he, so Dan goes outside to steal a car. He sees a runabout. I steal it. No one will ever know. <laughs> it, you know, just turn. You know, and just goes on. You know. Okay, Jacques. What would be your desert island Warner Brothers cartoon? It, 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 it's uh. If it's if you say Dover Boys, I'm gonna kick you. No, in the nuts. no it's not. <laughs> <laughs> or is it your? Or is I have it the no idea where she hit them. <laughs> but seriously, uh, honestly, I I I think it's like you know, Wabbit season, duck season, Wabbit season, duck season, duck season, fire. <laughs> My favorite, I think, would be Waikiki Rabbit because. <laughs> It's just like that's such a lean. I said that, <laughs> right? Gosh, did you say that? That's a lean cartoon. Interestingly enough, the only character voiced in that cartoon by Mel Blanc is was, Bugs. Is Bugs? The two uh, castaways uh, were voiced by the writers, and those are the char- caricatures are, of the writers. Right. So, like the writers of the episodes <laughs> wrote themselves in as the castaways, that's cool. and they voiced their own I mean, voices. Like Mike Maltese and uh, Ted Pierce, I think. A ship. Right. It's a <laughs> ship. We're saved. We're going on a boat. We're going on. on. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Don't forget to write. (laughs) Bye. Don't forget to write. Farewell. (laughs) Don't smack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. This is the cheesiest thing, and we do it all the time. Everybody does it all the time because it's cheesy. Give me your Mount Rushmore of, of cartoon characters. Um, Warner Brothers cartoons. Of Warner Brothers cartoons. You know, I mean, Daffy. You know, again, 40 Staffy, mm-hmm. uh, Bugs, Elmer, uh, and I'm gonna have to say, I might actually say Peppy Le Pew. Wow, right. yeah, no I'm, Porky. There was a uh, cartoon which I, I saw as a kid. And, and talk about racist, like well, a, Fran- a-, a French smelly guy. Uh, French, French isn't a race. <laughs> but you know, but Anyways, the stereotype about right, right. But I saw this as a kid, and you know, it wasn't until twenty some odd years later that I, you know, finally saw it as an adult. He says, you know, after the cat runs away, he says, "Oh well, there are plenty of other fish in the ocean." If you like fish, <laughs> <laughs> which you know, we we are going, we are going to get to one of we're my. We're going to finish things. chewing first. We or me? <laughs> the collective we, the royal we. The royal we. Uh, we are going to, and by we, I mean you two, do a little self-indulged theater. But I have one last question before we move on to self-indulgent theater, which I always love. How often was Bugs Bunny and Dragon at one point did somebody say, Bugs, it's okay. You know, well, I mean, I mean, that was, I'm not judging, but it, that, it seemed a lot. I mean, that's vaudeville. You know, okay. you know the 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 whole you know pantomime humor of dressing up in drag and fooling somebody. I mean, uh, Uncle Milty pioneered yeah. that. Oh right? God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
but yeah, that go that goes right back to vaudeville. You know, just just that humor of you know we're going to take this stooge that's going to be completely fooled and enamored by enamored. this always it right, always by works. this obvious <laughs> character in drag. And by the way, not just a character in drag. A fucking rabbit. Like, it's like a human being <laughs> lusting after a female rabbit. Wrong on several levels. No, like, a f- uh, whatever. It's have a, you, have you seen Jessica Rabbit? I have. Come on. So yeah. now I guess it's the time where um, usually it's myself or Jacques and I would do this, but since Peter is here and he has a, uh, a knack for doing voices and... Yeah, unfortunately my voice, you know, um, as you could probably tell, my voice is a little... Uh, uh, raspy at this point in time, so I'm going to try, and maybe we can fix it in post. If we are going to fix it in post, so you, he, it's not going to sound. Qu- you're going to be like, "Wow, that's a." I didn't know he could get up that high. <coughs> uh, he can't. So, <laughs> yeah, I can do Muppet voices much better than I can do uh, Looney Tunes characters, but that's a different matter altogether. So, what we're going to do is a scene from probably one of Jacques' favorite cartoons. I think it's called what was it? Is it uh, Hunting? Oh, this was, uh, rabbit Hunting or Rabbit Seasoning? I believe Rabbit Seasoning. I'll be doing the voice. Of Bugs and Elmer, and oh, he's not a jock. Isn't to do? I don't. I don't do voices for it. Well, like Joe does great voices. I I, I do a voice. I do Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is just a variation of Bernie Sanders. Gil Burton is not a variation. Of, <laughs> you know. Don Knotts, and that's the other one. Don Knotts, right? And, and of course, our favorite. Paul Lynn. <laughs> but who doesn't but do a Paul Lynn? Everybody Lynn. does Paul Lynn, you say here. All right. All right. That's a good That's Paul Lynn. That's a great Paul Lynn. Yes. So. Yeah, well, my favorite Paul Lynn joke is an aside here. You know, it was um, on Hollywood Squares. I'll take Paul Lynn for the block. Paul. Yes. In Alice in Wonderland, who ran around shouting, I'm late, I'm late? Alice. And her mother's sick about it. <laughs> 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 that might be the second best Paul in line. The best Paul in line is this place smells like pussy. I think. <laughs> so but that is a fantastic Paul. Yes, we we we, we did a, a Paul in um, Halloween special episode no, this year, right? And then I did the Thanksgiving. No, did I do the yes, Thanksgiving, did the Thanksgiving special? We are going to do an annual Paul in thing, and you must be back. For that. Uh, I, so yeah, we'll uh, don't worry. We'll we'll feed you in M and M's or something. I'm sure we'll come up with something. But right now, we're going to do self indulgent theater, rabbit seasoning. I'm Bugs and Elmer, and Peter is Daffy. So I'll take it away. Eh. What's up, Doc? I'm hunting wabbits. It's wabbit season. Oh, wabbit season, huh? Having any luck? Well, no, as a matter of fact, I haven't seen a wabbit yet. This is preposterous! Hey, what's the matter with you anyway? Don't you even know a rabbit when you see him? It's true, Doc. I'm a rabbit, all right. Would you like to shoot me now or wait till you get home? Shoot him now! Shoot him now! You keep out of this. He doesn't have to shoot you now. He does so have to shoot me now! I demand that you shoot me now! Let's run through that again. Okay. Would you like to shoot me now? Oh, wait till we get home. Shoot him now. Shoot him now. You keep out of this. He doesn't have to shoot you now. Ha! That's it. Hold it right there. Pronoun trouble. It's not he doesn't have to shoot you now. It's he doesn't have to shoot me now. Well, I say he does have to shoot me now. So shoot me now. Uh, uh, Yes. No, you don't. Not again. Sorry. This time we'll try it from the other end. Look, you're a hunter, right? White. And this is wabbit season, right? White. And if he was a rabbit, what would you do? Yeah, you're so smart. If I was a rabbit, what would you do? Well, I'd... I'd... Not again. (laughs) 
literally, that makes me so, and I didn't know what I was saying earlier, that that's my favorite thing that you guys, you guys have prepped this. Peter, how do people follow you on the, uh, on the interwebs? Well, I'm half of a uh, puppetry team. Uh, my partner, Patrick, and I do a uh, number of different YouTube videos. Patrick's channel uh, called Zingcat, which is X-I-N-G cat. Uh, <laughs> it's cat crossing, basically. C-A-T. Um, so you can look for that channel there, and we do a number of different videos. Um, and they're kind of like Henson-esque type of... Yeah, there's definitely, they're definitely modeled after the Jim Henson style of... Uh, puppets. We have some puppets that were, are, you know, we started the channel with a few off the rack puppets and we've started to venture into our own custom built characters. The stars of your channel are George the Self Esteem Cat, Cat and, and Dog <laughs> and Sullivan Spaniel, who follows trends on uh, YouTube and wants to become YouTube famous but fails miserably in each case. Um, Again, something <laughs> shocking, I'm sure, relate to. That, that, that I can relate to. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. You, I mean, you have 40, Guilty as charged. You have 4,300 subscribers, so not too shabby. I mean, it's, you know, and it's, and it's yeah, good I material. Mean, yeah. we, we have four, three subscribers. We have four, and then we went down to three. Okay. Is that, That's what happened. Is that the same? Yeah. Yes. Okay. But, you know, so we don't explain it. math to Jacques. <laughs> So that's probably our biggest presence on- online, you know, and I've, you know, I'm a graphic designer by trade and, you know, playwright by fancy. So, you know, I'm on the net in other places as well, but that's probably the most current where, you know, where you can see me. I think it's... Or where you can see my characters. Yeah, we can hear you. You can hear me. Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you, Peter, so much for joining us and contracting even more of a cough down in this (laughs) musty old basement. Thank you for... I actually I thought th- my cold was better before I got <laughs> here. But, but <laughs> he opened the window with influenza. <laughs> and, but no, seriously, thank you for being here for part one <laughs> uh, 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 of the cartoon breakdown. We would absolutely, you know, uh, you know, because we we share a love of the Muppets. And as soon as I walked in, you guys started doing like the two greatest Muppets of all time, which I think were, I was going to say, were modeled after us. But you were you were minus one when the Muppet Show went on, <laughs> so it's kind of hard for them to have modeled. No, they did not model Statler and Waldorf. After uh, us. You know, but but I don't know how long this went. It flew by. It's absolutely great to to have somebody with so much passion and knowledge on something that Joe and I love very much. Uh, like I said, we will have you back for the Muppets if you will come back and and, and literally twist you know, my arm. It, yeah, no. I, <laughs> Not so hard. <laughs> we love we love when people come here because uh, we're so fucking sick of each other. <laughs> right? Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, Please, it is so good to have like somebody who knows what they're talking about when they're talking about this shit. But literally, we can't say thank you enough. You're welcome. And um, yeah, thank you for actually gifting me your curation of animation. I mean, it's just I mean, when I'm bound to a bed. And can't move anything except my remote control finger. I'll have lots <laughs> and, and, and of all the blue bloods you've watched. <laughs> right, right. I've watched every NCIS that ever existed. I'll have the cartoon 50, collection. Some fifty five hundred cartoons. Or I, like oh that. my god! I mean, just it just it, it boggles the mind. We well, got two TVs, so you, you can play your left to right scroller games on this one <laughs> while while constantly playing a steady stream. But I can that. save some time by skipping the buddy cartoons. That's oh. that that. <laughs> I've no, I've learned. You can skip the Columbia cartoons too. <laughs> so thanks again, mm-hmm. Peter, and once again, Jacques. Don't forget. And that's the end.
end. 